from Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days. Listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. (laughs) And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people, and you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving, that God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. Tonight we have six storytellers on the theme of choosing and deciding. So here's how tonight's show will progress. Each of our six storytellers will be introduced to you by MC Pat Spaulding. Then we'll share a true story from their lives. Everyone has up to 10 minutes for their telling. We don't have a rating system. There's no voting or grading. This is just real live storytelling. I now pass the mic on to our MC, Pat Spaulding, to introduce our first storyteller. Come on up, Pat. Thanks, Amy. First up, we have Michael Lang. He is a writer storyteller who works through his own small business, The Coyotes Inkwell. For 10 years before starting this business, Michael was a ropes course facilitator and a wilderness guide. Mike's story tonight focuses on a single moment when and why he decided to go back to Minnesota to spend a second season working as a guide. Its title is The Chain of Inconsequential Decisions. Come on up, Mike. Another flash of lightning crossed the sky overhead. The thunder rolled. At that moment, I was standing knee-deep in the waters of Elbow Lake. I was pushing five aluminum canoes to the far side of the cove. At that moment, I was, in fact, doing everything my mother had told me not to do in a thunderstorm. (laughs) Hey, pirate, a voice shouted from shore. It was one of the members of the group I was guiding. Everybody called me pirate. The previous summer, in 2006... I had cut off my ponytail, and it felt weird not having anything on the back of my neck, so I wore this long red bandana that gave me a sort of Johnny Depp look. (laughs) And so everyone called me Pirate. Hey, Pirate, do you need a hand with that? 
I looked back at him. No, in fact, I would prefer you to be as far away from me as possible right now. How had it come to this? How had I become the captain of a floating lightning rod? (laughs) The previous summer, I had been an intern, a trail guide, working at Wilderness Inquiry. And during my staff training, it had been pounded into my head to always consider the chain of inconsequential decisions. All those choices that we make, whether consciously or unconsciously, that could possibly lead up to catastrophe. (laughs) How had it come to be that I was standing in the middle of a lake, pushing canoes in a thunderstorm? How had this happened to me? I thought and I thought, The beginning of that day, we had known that there was a storm in the air. Both my co-facilitator, co-guide, and I, we had both known. We had felt it. We had urged our group to paddle as fast as they could across Elbow Lake. We had hoped that we would reach the Portage Trail, make our crossing to the next lake, and we'd be able to reach the shore where our van and trailer were waiting for us. But the storm had blown in faster than we thought, and we had decided when the first bolt of lightning had flashed to hunker down amongst the trees of that portage trail. We'd strung up tarps to protect our group from the rain that was now coming in fierce droves. And that was the moment when I had realized we had tied our canoes within feet of our group. I have seen what lightning can do to trees, how it splits the trunks, burns the bark. Lightning can do strange things. It can leap from one trunk to another. It can discharge through an entire root system. I knew those boats had to be moved. My co-guide knew it as well. And I suppose we could have flipped for it. We could have played a round of rock, paper, scissors. (laughs) But the reality is, I'm legally blind. If something were to happen to her, I would not be able to drive the van to get the group to safety. And so in the words of Spock from Star Trek, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. But you know what? When you're that one, it really bites. (laughs) And so there I was, pushing canoes across water in a thunderstorm. But that morning had not been the first link in that chain of inconsequential decision. It really spanned much further back because two months ago, I was living happily in Dover, New Hampshire. I was working a really nice job at a ropes course. I had no desire to leave. And then one afternoon in early May, I had come home. One of my housemates was working in the kitchen and she had turned a crooked smile towards me. Hey. There's a message on the machine for you from some guy. He sounds like he's high. What? I played the message. Hey, pirate, Mike, this is Andy at Wilderness Inquiry. I was wondering, uh, you know, we're putting together our, our contracts for the summer. And it'd be really sweet if you wanted to come back, man. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be sweet. So, uh, you know, here's the number. If you, if you, if you want to give me a call in the next couple of days, that would be sweet, man. No, that's just how Andy is. He's just that laid back. I mean, the most distress we ever heard in his voice ever was when my buddy's bike was stolen from the staff house in Minneapolis. Dude, that's a real bummer. (laughs) And so that afternoon, the decision had started. Should I stay or should I go? All evening, I sat in the swing on our front porch. I was watching the sunset, considering, should I stay or should I go? It's like that song by The Clash, if I go, there will be trouble, if I stay, it will be double. No, no, there wouldn't be any trouble if I stayed. I had a job that I enjoyed at the local ropes course. I was making enough money to pay my share of rent for this house. 
granted, in a couple weeks, the semester would be over and my housemates would be leaving, having finished their degrees at University of New Hampshire, but Dover is only about a 15-minute drive from campus. There's plenty of people always looking for places to live. I could easily get two more housemates. All of my basic needs were met, and compared to some of the apartments I'd lived in, this place was a palace. We had a backyard with a deck. We had a swing on our front porch, a porch swing. Why would I want anything more than this? <laughs> I made up my mind. I was staying. There was no way I was going to go back to Minnesota. The next day, I went to work bright and early. I came home that afternoon fully planning to call Andy and politely decline the offer to come back. And then my landlady stopped in and proudly announced she was selling the house. <laughs> I no longer had a place to call my own. My basic needs were no longer met, and that mental balance scale of should I stay or should I go swung around, and when I called Andy that afternoon, I did not politely decline. I gratefully accepted, and another link was forged in that chain of inconsequential decisions. The next was forged a few weeks later. On my first trip, I was in Montana, leading a five-day trip down the Missouri River when the other guides had a serious lapse of judgment and I was the one who was left to pick up the slack and my diligence was rewarded with more work, more responsibilities. My average turnaround time between trips shrank to less than 12 hours. My life became one trip after the next each one of them forging a link in a chain of inconsequential decisions that had led to this small lake in northern Minnesota where at any moment I could be fried like a Cajun catfish. <laughs> the canoes bumped against the far shore of the cove. I gratefully hopped out of the water, grabbed the rope that was tied to all five boughs, threw it around a tree, tied a knot, and went running back to my group. <sighs> well, folks... You've just seen everything you should not do in a thunderstorm. As we all laughed, we heard the sound of frantic paddling. Another aluminum canoe came cruising into that cove. The lone paddler leapt out of his boat into the shallows, scooped up his boat, throwing it on his shoulders, and went running down the portage trail. <laughs> is, is he really continuing on in this? The lightning flashed again, the thunder rolled, and in the silence that followed... I could hear the splash of a canoe being dropped into water. I could hear metal grating against rock. And I could hear the sound of labored paddling fading into the distance. I stand corrected, folks. Now you have seen everything you should not do in a thunderstorm. The chain of inconsequential decisions. Well, thanks a lot, everybody. Oh, I like that. I can put that in my repertoire, the chain of inconsequential decisions. I'm going to use that. Next up is Kathy Wolf. She is a writer, now exploring stories through the spoken word, who lives in Kittery's Foreside, Maine. Kathy spends much of her time focused on controlling her gardens that overlook the Piscataqua and uh, harbor almost every type of New England invasive. She and her Foreside neighbors also battle another New England invasive, high-end condos, and pricey marinas that are trying to take over the neighborhood. <sighs> We're so familiar with that in this area. Tonight, Kathy leaves all that behind to tell a story about her interior decor titled, Joyful Downsizing. 
I've decided to trade in my queen-size bed for a twin-size one. The queen-size bed I have is too big for the little room where I now choose to sleep. Since it's up against a wall, actually two walls, I must <coughs> fling myself across it to tuck in the corners. There's also no room for a book or a glass of wine or a light. The cozy joy of reading in bed eludes me. A twin bed will leave just enough space for a small table without blocking the door. This queen bed that I have now is 20 years old, bought with sorrow <coughs> and hope when my husband and I parted for the last time. During most of our marriage, there was posted on our refrigerator a big advertisement, a photo of a young couple sitting quite happily in the middle of a giant bed. The headline, more than a bed, a way of life. <laughs> Whenever the bed came, I, the word bed, any bed, came up in conversation, either my husband or I would say gravely, more than a bed, a way of life, <laughs> and laugh. But a shared sense of humor wasn't enough to save our marriage. He took our bed. I volunteered to use the, keep the futon couch. That worked for about two weeks. My back started screaming. So I went to Woodbury Avenue to Sleepy's or Bed Factory or whatever that place is over there, one of the stores. May I help you? The salesman was in his 20s. I, I need to buy a bed, which must have sounded strange since that's all they sold there. It's not that difficult, he tried to reassure me. <laughs> Firm or soft? <laughs> Firm, I answered. Twin, double, queen, or king size, said the young man. I paused, and the whole void of my future enveloped me. That's the problem. My face, voice was having trouble staying steady. I, I don't know if I'll ever share a bed again. Lady, uh, I can't help you with that, <laughs> the poor clerk said, and he backed away. <laughs> I fled from the store, but a week later, I bought a queen-sized bed. When it arrived at my house, I laid down in the middle of it, and I stretched my arms and legs to the edges, snow angel style. Somehow, this was comforting, making myself fit the bed, the whole bed, Convincing myself I didn't need another body present to justify the purchase. I've shared it a few times over the years, but never long enough to even out the left side indentation of sleeping alone. It ceased, that bed, to be comfortable probably about eight years ago. I just didn't notice. Lack of space and comfort are not the most important reasons for uh, just downsizing. The truth is, I no longer feel the need for a big bed. It's not resignation. It would have been resignation 20 years ago. It's acceptance. In fact, I've grown aware that I am not only fine sleeping alone, I actually prefer it. <laughs> I'm at a point in my life when the tangle of physical intimacy holds little appeal. I've probably been at that point for a while, but I denied it. I thought that I couldn't really be happy and or fulfilled without a partner, or at least a bed partner. Yeah, it would be nice to have someone to scratch and maybe even scrub the middle section of my back that I can no longer reach. It'd be nice to have someone to help with certain jars and windows that don't always yield to my slowly declining strength, to cuddle up with on cold nights, to share a laugh about something in the news, or to guarantee a ride 
to the bus station or the hospital. But all of that I can manage. I have a lid gripper to tackle stubborn jars. I own a bamboo back scratcher in splurge on a massage now and then. I just had new windows installed. Leaving my car at the bus station gives me time alone in the last lap of returning home from wherever I've gone. In the winter, an electric blanket and a couple of cats keep me cozy. And I often share meals and laughs with women I've known for years. Those same friends will drive me to the hospital where I must go soon to get a new knee. It was the prospect of that surgery and long recovery that first led me to consider a smaller, easier bed. Then Gloria Steinem helped me expand my thinking. I recently heard the legendary feminist now in her 80s note that women post-age 50 or 60 or maybe 65, all of which I am, are at a point in life similar to childhood, an ungendered time when there's little interest in the exhausting pursuit of sex or romance, where there is no regretting that lack of interest no feeling something is missing. I doubt this is true for all women, especially those who have partners they still love and enjoy, or those who were grafted to another and their loss is like losing a part of their being. But with relief, I think it's true for me. And I know it's true for others, even if they get there just step by step. A friend recently told me of a woman who announced on Facebook she was getting a smaller bed. So you've given up, responded a friend. No, she posted back. Sex just doesn't take up as much room as it used to. (laughs) My mother is 96. Just last year she gave up the largest bed I've ever seen because she moved to an apartment. There was no room... uh, There was enough room in that bed for a small Vietnamese family. It would take her 15 minutes to make it going around and around. It's the only exercise I get some days, my mother told me. Maybe she didn't want to let that bed go because it was the last one she shared with her husband, my father, who died 25 years ago. Maybe it's the intimacy. When you think about it, a bed is the most intimate, the most private of furniture. We bring to it our tears, our dreams, our passion, fresh starts, and regrets. We heal in bed in big and small ways. It's a place that asks no more of us than just to be. It's the place we end each day and begin another. I've recently come across some interesting photos of myself. (laughs) One is me at age four, kneeling in the grass, I look at that snapshot, and I recall how much I embraced my childhood, how I thought I could see the world from the top of the apple tree, and the wonder, the fantasy, the sheer joy of somersaulting in fresh grass, the mysterious smell of lightning bugs, my absolute certainty at age 12 that it was and would always be the best year of my life. There are other photos. First year in college, wearing a beanie and a big grin. Fifteen years later, pregnant and moody. Fifteen years after that, chemo, bald, but for some reason, beaming. And then there's the one taken by a photographer lover when I was 22. Backlit, with my long hair tumbling over one eye, that woman is much sexier than I recall. I check carefully for feelings of regret, jealousy, nostalgia. They're not there. Instead, I've arranged all the photos 
on a shelf across from my bed, and all of us are enjoying the reunion. I'll pack them away again when the new bed arrives. Reunions aren't meant to last for very long, and I don't want to feel crowded by past lives or outlived expectations. There will always be room in my dreams and in my heart for the passions of my younger selves. But for now, I will get under the covers with a good book, happy to be in a bed that fits just me. The time is 6.57, and you are listening to WSCALP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, broadcasting from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is True Tales Radio. I'm your announcer, Amy Antonucci, and I'm going to hold on to the mic a little bit longer so I can introduce you to our next storyteller, who is usually our introducer. So, Pat Spaulding. Our MC here on True Tales Radio lives in Rye, New Hampshire. She's an activist, majorette storyteller who likes to sing and dance. Pat writes and tells stories for grown-ups, twirls a baton with a leftist marching band, and sings with a chorus, Contuti, here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Tonight she'll tell us about her inability to make decisions or to get a good night's sleep in her story, The Storm's Invitation. Come on up, Pat. We're ready. Okay, so decisions are a problem for me. Um, it takes a long time for me to even make minor decisions. For instance, glasses. I got a new prescription about a year ago. I still haven't decided on the style of glasses. Every once in a while, I try some on, and then I just let it drop for a while. Because these work. Two months ago, I stepped on my glasses, and I thought, all right, now I've got to make a decision. But no, I wired the frame together so that I could prolong the agony of indecision. It just goes on. I still haven't decided. And that, in part, is why I don't sleep very well. I go to sleep, but about 2 a.m., 3 a.m., I wake up to pee, and then trying to go back to sleep that second time. That's when I go over all the choices, all the decisions, all the indecisions, all the shouldas, all the shouldas. Just replaying the story again and again, not able to shut it down. I don't go to sleep. Back when I was working in my 30s and 40s and had to get up early, I suffered sleep deprivation. I dragged my body around like a sack of skin on a tired old skeleton. I pleaded with my doctor, please, please, sleeping pills. She said, no, you're too young to become addicted to sleeping pills. Okay, over-the-counter, they made me feel terrible, made me feel sick. Yoga was supposed to relax you. I was flexible, but meditation, it bored me. Nothing worked <laughs> until finally I got old. That worked for my doctor because I was no longer too young to become addicted to sleeping pills. She prescribed Ambien, the Sandman's little assistant. <laughs> now, at 2 a.m., I break off a pill, and then I bite off half of that, swallowing only 2.5 milligrams, and I open a book until my eyelids get heavy and I can go to sleep. <sighs> the magical gift of drug-induced sleep. It gets me through my days. It's like being a normal person. So that's kind of solved, but it's still 
I'm very protective of my sleep. I have a cabin, very remote cabin that is surrounded by conservation land. There's no road to it. You get there by boat. There's no electricity. There's no plumbing. And I, for many, many years, most of the years of my life, never went there alone. I always go either with my family or later with my husband or later with my dad. And then after they all departed with friends. So it's a great place to have people. One summer, many years ago, it was family weekend, which is a traditional weekend that uh, the whole family gets together. I invite cousins, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters to pack up their kids, food, grandkids, tents, because the cabin can accommodate only so many sleepers, to spend the weekend together. So this one weekend, it was a perfect summer night. It was a full moon. I woke up at 2 a.m. to pee, had to walk outside because no plumbing. And there was this big moon that was drawing me toward the lake. So I followed the moon and saw this shiny glittering path that came toward me. And there was just enough of a breeze that it was, it could fill a sail. I could actually sail on this night on the glittering path of the moon. I thought, Wow, what a thing to do. Everybody's asleep. And there was a boat right beside me, a little sunfish sailboat. It was all set and ready to go. I could just shove off and sail on the glittering path of the moon. What an opportunity. This was a moment like no other. But by myself, at 2 o'clock in the morning, nobody knows I'm out there. You know, something could happen. Might not be safe. Well, I could wake somebody up because there are a lot of people sleeping in tents, but I didn't know any of them who might like to be woken up at 2 o'clock in the morning, so, well, that's probably not a good idea. I could do... But then, I was responsible for this whole shindig. I needed my sleep. Frankly, I didn't want to go through the next day getting up all sleep-weary and weary and unable to tell people where the coffee was. I was in charge. I had to be on my game. So I, I turned my back on this opportunity, went inside, shook out a little pill from that magic vial, fell asleep. And the next morning, I woke up with regret. Regret. Why did I not take advantage of that opportunity, that moment like no other. I looked for a similar night for seven years. I, I looked for an, another night like that one because I promised myself that I wouldn't let it go this time. But I never found it. There was never a night like that that presented itself to me again. But sometimes you're offered a second chance. Maybe not in the same form. And I actually would like to read a line from a poem that I just heard this past Saturday that kind of plays into this second chance. It's written by Sarah Anderson. And it says, until you are completely alone, you will not know the wildness of silence, dramatic light after a storm. So, years later. 
I'm not alone. Nope. Family weekend is over, been entertaining friends at camp, and it's time to leave. So everybody's packing up to go. We hear the first rumblings of thunder. Uh-oh, we've got to beat a storm. Now, it should have taken two trips to get four people, two dogs, various bags, and coolers across the lake in this small aluminum boat. <laughs> but wanted to beat the storm, so packed them all in, loaded to the gunnels, little five-horsepower motor, struggled to get us to the other side. We made it, helped everybody unload up to the cars, see ya, and great, down, back to the boat. This would be the first, the very first night that I had ever spent at the cabin alone by myself. I was anxious to test myself against the imagined creatures that lurk in the unpeopled woods at night. Ba-boom. Okay, well, I, I pulled the rope to get the motor started, pulled it again, and again, it wouldn't start. Okay, must be flooded. I was waiting to see how long it should take before I tried again. When lightning lit the sky, it began to rain. It's about 6.30 at night, and I realized, okay, I, I can't cross the lake in this, so tied up the boat and figured I'm going to walk, walk through the woods. I'll get there. About 20 minutes in, I come to the point. The point is exactly what it sounds like. It's a point of rocks that overlooks the lake. You can see the whole length of it. You can see across the woods across, around the cove. The storm had passed. It was perfectly still. Nobody else was there. This was a moment like no other. So quiet after the storm. I looked at the boulders in front of my cabin. It's about a quarter mile away. I thought, I could swim there. Wow, I don't need to hike all the way around the cove about 30 minutes to get to the cabin. I could just swim directly there. It's only about a quarter mile. What a great idea. Still lake, good. So I kicked off my shoes, figured I'd just jump in the water and what I had on, shorts and t-shirt. And then nobody else is here. Nobody's on this lake. I can skinny dip even better. So took off my clothes, just tucked them away, could pick them up with the canoe the next day, stepped in the water. Uh-oh. Nobody's expecting me. Nobody knows I'm here. I could disappear in this. Nobody would ever know what happened. Oh, Pat, she made a bad decision. Last time she'd make a decision, though, she'd done. And then I remembered that moment seven years ago when I was staring at the moon, invited to set sail, and I found reasons not to do it and regretted it ever since. I wasn't going to regret anything this time. So I just dove into that water, that, that still beautiful, deep, dark, post-storm water. Have you ever skinny dipped? in a lake after a storm. You can smell the ozone, and there's this certain feel of silkiness of a lake water recently refreshed by the rain. I pushed my arms through that black water. It was like being a mermaid. I was made for this moment. I was made to be carried to the cabin this way. 
My body was not a whole sack of skin being dragged around by gravity on some tired old bones. I was held <laughs> until I made it to the other side and climbed out and wrapped up in a warm, a dry towel and built a fire and warmed my hands over the fire. And I thought about all the decisions I'd made in my life to this point. Some pretty bad ones, <laughs> but maybe you'd just say less good ones. Good ones, less good ones. But they all led up to this one choice that brought me right here to this place, this way, this night, to a moment that I will never regret. And that night, I slept very well. <laughs> Thank you. Whew. That was an experiment. I usually uh, write my stories and then edit them. And this is a long story that I had written, but I, I decided that I would do a short form of it and not write it down. Because that's what storytellers, that's what real storytellers do. Whew. It's hard. <laughs> Speaking of real storytellers, next up comes Andy Davis, a fellow storyteller, a long time activist who lives at the foot of Mount Chikora in the White Mountains with his wife and daughter. He and his wife, Andrea, are directors of the World Fellowship Center in Albany, New Hampshire. Andy has traveled extensively, working for social justice in several different countries. He's gathered and told stories along the way. And tonight, he will share with us a story from one of his adventures titled Myers-Briggs. Looking forward to this one, Andy. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. When I was on the cusp of 30, I went to do human rights work in Guatemala. And the three years that I spent there were the most important formative experience of my adult life. And the most rewarding aspect of it was the people I got to work with, the Guatemalans and my US teammates. We came from all over the US, from all kinds of different backgrounds. We were recruited, vetted, winnowed, and selected to have certain basic characteristics. But we brought, all brought something individual, something special to the team. For example, Laura brought from her vegetarian supper club in San Diego a raucous card game called Maui that we ended up playing every spare moment when we got together for team meetings. And it became a really excellent way to uh, relieve stress. Laura was also the one who had all kinds of hints from Heloise type suggestions <laughs> about how to look your best in trying circumstances. <laughs> which came in handy in a war zone. Now, Dan from Salem, Oregon, who I knew as the Oregonian man-child, but that's another story. He was the one who was our pop culture expert. 
For starters, he had the subscription to Rolling Stone magazine, which was really important in those pre-internet days to, as a way to remain connected to U.S. pop culture. But he had a vast fund of general knowledge of his own beyond his years. If there was a difference of opinion about what the last song on the second side of Blood on the Tracks was, he could tell you what it was. He also would answer philosophical questions. For example, if you were wondering whether Stevie Ray Vaughan was worthy of carrying Jimi Hendrix's guitar case in heaven, Dan would have a strong opinion about that. Dan was also the one who introduced our team to the Myers-Briggs personality <laughs> inventory. Now, I, I always hear knowing laughter when I talk about this. For those of you who haven't been introduced to it, the Myers-Briggs was developed by a mother-daughter team in the years after World War II based on Jung's theories of personality types. And it was basically meant as a practical tool to help organizations work together better by understanding their different personality styles. But it did was developed in those post-war years, and it had a bit of a utopian flavor to it, the idea that we could achieve world peace by crossing lines of difference through this kind of understanding. The way that it works is this. You take a test of 93 questions, and uh, depending how you answer the questions, you fall on one side or the other of a, a set of four preferences. And the preferences basically have to do with whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, and then how you acquire information, how you process information, and how you make decisions. And based on where you fall on those axes, you end up getting a letter, like introvert would be I, and so you end up with four letters like ISTJ or INTF or uh, ESTP. You get the general idea. <laughs> Dan and Laura were the ones who really took this seriously. The rest of us, we took the test, we knew what our personality types were, but we didn't go into it much deeper than, than that. They knew all the ins and outs, and they knew what all our personality types were, and they would bring it up in our meetings. <laughs> For example, they would say, you're being a little rigid about that, Pat, and that's because you're a T. But my F-ness makes me take more extenuating circumstances into account in a case like this. Now, a big part of the work that we did together was delegations. We would host groups from universities and churches and solidarity organizations. We would take them around the country in 10 to 14 days, uh, taking them to a series of meetings in the capital and then shepherding them around the countryside so that they'd get a good idea of what was happening in the country and would be able to work to, to, for a more just U.S policy when they got back to the states. Now, because we were trying to cram a lot of experiences into a really short amount of time, um, it, it meant that 
And, and during this time, we were translating for them. We were making sure that their beds were comfortable. We were making sure they had enough to eat and they were well rested and so forth. And so uh, a 10 to 14 day delegation, especially with the security concerns we had to deal with, uh, could feel a little bit long, could be a little bit exhausting and stressful but fun, especially when you got to work with people like Dan and Laura. <laughs> so in August of 1992, um, we hosted a delegation from Bluffton College in Ohio. Fifteen college kids, um, more than half women. And uh, one thing you should know about delegations is that, well, the, it, it, it was a really enjoyable thing for Dan and I to be looked up to as the wise, heroic figures <laughs> fighting the good fight um, on the front lines. And, and so in this particular delegation group, Dan and I were both ENFPs, and Laura was an <laughs> INTJ. And that meant that Dan and I were warm, enthusiastic, flexible. Um, Laura was cool, uh, decisive, had high standards for herself and other people on the delegation or her teammates. Now, where it sometimes got sticky on delegations was on the JP axis, the one that had to do with decision making. Now, as you've probably already figured out, Laura liked to um, come to really well-considered decisions and then stick by them, while Dan and I like to be, remain open to possibilities. And on this particular delegation, uh, some of the possibilities Dan wanted to remain open to were all those college women. <laughs> now, he, he was... Flirting pretty heavily with Sarah, this outspoken political science major, but he was open to the charms of other women on the delegation, and Dan was pretty charming himself. So wherever he went on this delegation, he was surrounded by a phalanx of, of these college women. We had our meetings in the Capitol, and then we um, rented a Bluebird minibus to go out to Lake Atitlan. Uh, and one of the main things that we would be doing out there was meeting with a group of peasants in a place called San Jorge La Laguna who had had their land tricked out of them by uh, wealthy developers who had some uh, unscrupulous, fast-talking attorneys. So the peasants had reinvaded their land to keep these people from building a huge tourist hotel on their farming land. So we were going there to help uh, raise their profile a little bit, but a big part of the question was, would we stay overnight and risk our whole operation in the country because we could get arrested and kicked out of the country for engaging in illegal activity and so forth? So we had a lot of decisions to make on this short bus ride, but Dan was primarily interested in fast-paced repartee and flirtation with his new group of friends. 
But we managed to corral Dan and get them in, him into the middle of the bus. And by this point in the delegation, um, Laura was losing patience with Dan. You see, Dan and I were both kind of out on one end of the JP axis, the other end from Laura. But I was more sort of towards the middle. So when Laura made a decision or suggested a decision, I was able to come to consensus with her fairly quickly. And then the one who continued to examine all the other options uh, was Dan. So Laura was starting to lose patience, feeling that he his indecisiveness was endangering the delegation experience. So as we sat down in the middle of the bus, uh, Laura was kneeling on the seat in front of Dan, facing backwards. Dan had his knees up on the back of the seat and was leaning backwards. I was across the aisle looking at, at Dan and Laura, and Laura kind of laid out the decision we had to make again, that we could uh, stay overnight and possibly risk our, our whole team's presence in the country. Or we could stay in the nearby tourist town of Panahachel and make a couple of day visits and still provide a lot of support. And so Laura said, so I recommend that we stay in Pana. We'll still be able to raise their profile enough. And uh, what do you think, Andy? And I said, I'm with you, Laura. I think you're totally on the right track. What do you think, Dan? And Dan leaned back, looked at the ceiling, looked at us, and then went back to the beginning. Not all the way back to the arrival of the conquistadores in this hemisphere, <laughs> but he did kind of trace the whole history of land, um, land ownership in Guatemala and uh, indigenous, the fight for indigenous rights on the lake and so forth, and then the history of Witness for Peace, our organization, and uh, how we ought to be on the side of the underdog in every situation uh, to the utmost and so forth. And then he said, on the other hand, <laughs> and that's when Laura lost it. She stood up on her knees and leaned towards Dan. She started to go red in the face, and she was trembling, and her voice started to raise, and all the other conversations on the bus stopped as she said, Come on, Dan! What's up with you? This whole delegation is riding on your penis! <laughs> coming up to follow that one. <laughs> John lives in Dover, New Hampshire, but spends most of his time at this radio station, this very one. After working in the education field for 36 years as a biology and media production teacher, he is now happily retired. Well, sort of. John's been volunteering here at WSCA Radio since September 2004 as the host of Audio Theater, a program that airs each Tuesday night at this time. And since January 2014, he's been the producer of this show, True Tales Radio. John's story tonight is titled, The Flip Hat and Vic's Vapor Rub. 
Okay. <laughs> well, now that we've taken care of the penis, <laughs> well, very, very good. Okay. Um, yes, uh, the, the flap hat, uh, actually, and, and the, the, the jar of Vicks Vapor Rub. Uh, in 1957, I was 10 years old, and the one thing I really wanted for Christmas was one of those very popular flap hats. Uh, all I knew was my friends had one, and I wanted one. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, they were hats that had fur on the side, these fur flaps that you could pull down around your ears, and then they had a, a thing of fur right in the front, a flap in front, and you could bring that down like a visor, it's like you do a, on a car, and you could tie the two flaps on the side with a string at the top, so it was up in the air. I believe they were a Russian in their design originally, but anyway, I really wanted one of those cool hats, so everybody was wearing one. And I, actually I needed one, I really needed the hat for Christmas. Now they were not inexpensive because they had real fur on them, I didn't want any cheap fake stuff, I wanted the real fur. And my parents were by no means wealthy. And we lived in a small house on Monadnock Street in Keene, New Hampshire. My parents worked hard. My mother actually worked at the Pepperidge Farms factory crimping uh, turnovers on an assembly line uh, eight hours a day in, in 30 degrees temperature in a room. And my father was a typesetter for a company that made uh, checks and uh, uh, business forms of all sorts. I had an older sister. She was 16 years old. She didn't like me very much. Uh, at that particular time, I was on her bad side because I caught her making out on the porch uh, with her boyfriend, and I went in and told my parents about it. I ratted her out, and I did that, but I did offer not to say anything for a quarter, and <laughs> they, they didn't buy my silence, so she paid a higher price. Uh, anyway, um, on, that was the situation. On, on, Christmas, on Christmas morning, Santa Claus brought brought me a light brown flap hat with black uh, fur uh, flaps on it. And I was pretty happy about that. Now, my mother told me that Santa had told her directly that that hat was uh, expensive and not to get it dirty and don't lose it. And I went up to my room wearing that hat. Don't worry, Santa. Rest of my life, this hat's shiny and new. No problems. Well, about two weeks after Christmas, we had a traditional uh, January thaw yeah, this actually was a little more than traditional. It was a long one. And uh, we had a lot of snow at that time. And so there was a lot of rapid snow melt. And one Saturday, my best friend, David O'Brien, who also had a flap hat, uh, came, came over to the house. And he was wearing his hat. And he said, hey, get on your hat. And let's go down the street and check out Beaver Brook. And uh, that was kind of exciting. Beaver Brook was a 25-foot wide brook that uh, ran through the city of Keene. And it uh, went underneath a street called Baker Street through a large culvert and then out into a field, sort of wound, sort of serpentine, uh, maybe about a mile. But this uh, brook was carrying a lot of water. It was almost at flood, st flood stage with this uh, warmth. And there's uh, warm temperatures going there. And my mother said to us as we went out the door, uh, she said, you keep away from that brook and stay out of the mud puddles. At least I think that's what she said. I'm not sure I had my flaps down and <laughs> the, uh, the fur sort of, you know, filtered the voice. But I, I think that's what she said. Anyway, now Dave and I were a bit overdressed for this expedition. Uh, we had on our flap hats, of course, and uh, we had suspenders with the snow pants and jackets and those, those rubber boots that had the buckles on them. Remember, you used to push them through and you had to flip them over. You could tighten them up that way. So we would, we would dress that way in brown mittens. 
and we had it for Beaver Brook. Now, I should tell you something else about the brook. Uh, this was 1957. There was no EPA. Beaver Brook carried dye, lots of dye, red, blue, green, you name it, from a tannery in Keene. It also carried chemicals uh, floating in the water. And uh, it, was, it was known as a real eyesore. And this particular day, it had just about everything flowing down it. Uh, as we got there, as we got to the edge of the brook, the water was literally cascading and, and going almost over the side. It was also streaked with a lot of red and blue dye and had a distinct odor of sulfur or rotten egg smells. And there was foam, lots of foam everywhere, red, blue, green foam being blown about. It was being caught, it got caught up in the bushes along the edges and the grass uh, and the shrubs. And it was very eye-catching for two 10-year-old boys. Now, I've been told not to go near the brook. But near is relative when you're <laughs> 10 years old. And, and Dave said to me, okay, let's, let's go over to the bridge on Baker Street and we'll look down into the brook. Yes, that's a good idea, Dave, down. Standing on a bridge looking down at the putrid-smelling rainbow-colored water flowing below us, well, that really wasn't near the brook, was it? it Why, well, we were 15 feet above the brook. Um, that's, yeah, let's safely stand uh, above the brook and allow our senses to just absorb the ambiance. <laughs> well, I stepped onto the first rail of the bridge we could feel the vibration of the water rushing through the culvert underneath us. It was coming right up through the, the, the uh, metal pieces of the bridge. We could feel them in our boots and all oh, the sound, the smell, the color, the vibration. This was exciting. I leaned over the railing. I wanted to get a different view of the water as it entered the culvert and below my feet. And then it happened. My beloved new flap hat tumbled end over end towards the water and landed upright, smack dab in the middle of that rolling, boiling, swirling cauldron of water, and with a rotten egg smell was being imperviated right into that, right into that hat immediately. And all of a sudden, in two seconds, it was gone underneath the culvert. Now, I became nauseated. I didn't know what to do. Uh, all of a sudden, I ran across the road to the other side, waited, didn't wait long, my hat came out. <laughs> And it was bouncing off one banking, then the other banking. It would go into some foam and disappear, come out the other side. Now it was no longer brown. It was red and blue, and, and it just looked awful. And I, I didn't know really what to do. Uh, it would disappear, and it was going to be gone down, down the riverbanks, and, and I would lose it, and that was it. So I, I kept thinking, don't get that hat dirty. Take care of it, and for gosh sakes, don't lose it. Those words raced through my mind. I had a decision to make. Hmm. I climbed over the railing, and I jumped onto the banking of the brook, and I began running along the edge of the brook, watching my hat, sloshing my way through the foam water and the, the snow on the side, and I quickly was running out of breath, and my hat was going to be gone if I did not decide now, either let it go or go get it. I was 10. I loved the hat and was afraid to go home without it. So I made the decision. Into the water I went. Feet first, landing about eight feet in front of the hat as it was coming down the river. The water went up to my neck. It was icy cold. It poured down the front of my shirt. It filled my boots. I could not move very fast because the current was pushing me. 
but I reached out one desperate grasp, grasp as this hat was going by me, and I caught on to the latch, the uh, tie at the top with my mitten, and I caught the lacing of the hat. I had my hat. I had made it. I got the hat. Meanwhile, Dave was running along the bank saying, get out, John, get out, get out. I needed both hands to uh, grab onto something, so I put my hat on my head. <laughs> now, of course, the smelly dye colored water ran down over my face, down my neck, into my eyes and mouth, it, but I did not care because I decided to save my hat. Uh, but now I had to figure out how to save myself. <laughs> but I did not care. Uh, I had decided to save my hat, and, and that was the decision I made, and Dave was running along and reaching down. He tried to grab my hand, uh, but the, I, kept, I lost it because the current took me. Uh, then the river made a very sharp turn, and it slowed down a little bit, and it enabled me to grab onto a branch, uh, and I got my boots into the muddy side. Dave was there by that time. He grabbed onto my shirt, or my coat, rather. I got onto the, I held onto the grass and the shrubs, got my feet into the side. I don't know how, but I got out of that brook, and uh, I, I couldn't, couldn't really believe it. I was freezing, I was shivering, and immediately said, I got to go home. The sloshing and the slosh and the squeezing and squishing of the water oozing out of my boots as I walked along. And I kept thinking, did I just jump into this river to save a hat? <laughs> my clothes were all different colors. And fearing what trouble I was going to get into and wanting no part of the carnage, uh, Dave went to his house. He didn't even bother to stop. <laughs> I went to the steps into the, uh, my house, went up into the kitchen, made a quick left turn, went down to the basement, down the stairs. And as I went down the stairs, I was trying to be quiet, but the squeaking and squishing and sound of the water bubbling out of my boots, somebody's going to hear this. <laughs> that was my father, because he was down at the bottom of the stairs working in the basement. And when I got down there, he walked over and said, what the hell happened to you? <laughs> and his nose was wrinkled. I think he could smell the rotten eggs. I could not tell him that I jumped into the brook I, I, to save the hat. Hell, I wasn't even supposed to be near the brook. So I came up with a very 10-year-old plausible excuse. I said, well, you know, Dad, Dave and I were running down the street. I slipped on a piece of ice and fell into a mud puddle. And he looked at me and he said, uh, well, that must have been some puddle. He says, after you get dried out, um, I want you to take me to that puddle. I'd like to, I'd like to see it. And I said, okay, Dad, but that's what happened. And at that point, I took off one of the boots and it went... <laughs> As I took it off, and all this, I dumped out about a cup and a half of red and blue water on the cellar floor, and he just looked at it. And then he looked up, and I turned around, and there was my mother standing there. She was observing the whole thing. She was shaking her head, and she said, a mud puddle, huh? I stuck, out, uh, stuck with my story. Yeah, it was a big one, Mom, <laughs> and really smelly and had all this dye in it. She said, look at your new hat. And there it was, fully streaked with the colors. The fur flaps that were once fluffy and kept my ears warm now looked like two burned hamburger patties covered with mud. Um, it was ruined. The hat was ruined. My mother said, get upstairs, take a bath, get in your pajamas, and get into bed. I said, to bed? It's the middle of the day. And then I said, ooh, you're walking on thin ice here. Um, I... I wasn't sure she believed my story. In fact, I, I began to think that she really uh, doubted the validity of what I had just told her. So as I, as I crawled into my bed uh, a few minutes later, got, got, got all cleaned up, my mother came in with a big wool stocking with two large safety pins hanging on one end. 
and what looked like about a quart-sized jar of Vicks Vapor Rub. Oh, and a spoon. Yep, I knew what I was in for. I knew what that spoon meant. Uh, she got big gobs of the Vicks Vapor Rub out with a spoon, and she smeared it all over the stocking. And she wrapped the stocking around my throat and pinned it behind my throat. And that was designed so that the vapor rub would waft up into my nose for, I think, maybe two or three months. There was, there, there was, a, there was enough stuff on there. And then she took the teaspoonful of Vicks Vapor Rub that I had been uh, accustomed to having when I had a cold, and I opened wide as she smeared the Vicks Vapor Rub on my tongue and said, swallow it, to coat my throat. I, we always did that. That's what we always did. So that wasn't... So she thought that that would help, so I gulped as the greasy mass slid down my throat and uh, said, but gee, I don't even have a cold. And my mother was raised a Catholic. My dad was Protestant. He would not agree to raise us in the Catholic Church, so I didn't really know what I was, except on that day I was in trouble. Um, <laughs> my mother said, because you're not telling the truth about what happened, God is going to punish you with a terrible cold, and I'm trying to make sure you are ready for it when it comes. Well, that did it. The confession broke loose. The whole truth and nothing about the truth, so help you God. Jesus, please don't let me die a horrible death from, from this uh, experience. And after my confession, my mother reminded me of what a dumb decision I had made and how lucky I was to have survived. Uh, on top of that, not telling the truth, of course, was a double whammy. I figured I would surely die during the night that was going to happen. So I just lay there, and later on my mother came up and had me come downstairs and have some chicken soup. Um, so as I look back at it now, it seems like a bit of a severe emotional punishment for a parent to administer to a kid, but given the culture of the time and how I could have drowned that day, all because I made the dangerous and, and stupid decision, really, to save my flap hat, I can understand a reaction, react, excuse me, and maybe, just maybe, Somebody or someone other than Dave was helping me out that day when I jumped on into that beaver brook to save my hat. And the flap hat, well, I got thrown, it got thrown away, and I wore an old knit hat for the rest of the winter, and I was glad I had it. And P.S., don't swallow vapor rub. Uh, that was an old-time home remedy used by many years, you know, many years ago. Uh, it's not a good thing to do, uh, and that's why they tell you on the bottle uh, not to be ingested. I guess they heard about my mom. <laughs> the flap hat and the jar of Vicks Vapor Rub. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, John. Kate Braun is an actor and theater director who has worked with several theater companies in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Newburyport, Massachusetts. She teaches acting and improvisation at a community college in Boston. It was theater that brought her and her husband, Court, together when they both met at a theater conference in Louisville, Kentucky. He was also a theater director and professor. Tonight, Kate's story is about deciding on the perfect spot to say goodbye to her husband, Court. It's titled, Scattering Ashes. My husband and I had been to Ireland a few times together. So, when he said it was the romantic in him that wanted his ashes scattered off the west coast of Ireland, I had some idea of where, even though he had not specified a particular location. 
And it was a year after Court's passing that I found myself making the trip. I first thought of going to County Sligo and scattering his ashes in the bay close to where his favorite poet, W.B. Yeats, is buried. But the time we'd visited Drumcliffe Cemetery, we were nearly attacked by a pair of wild roosters, and that memory did not serve me at all well in thinking of it as Court's final resting place. I then considered the Cliffs of Moher, but was reminded of the wind factor when a tour guide told me of a divorced woman who had attempted to throw her wedding ring over the cliff's edge only to have it blown right back at her. <laughs> I flew into Shannon, not really knowing where I'd go to scatter Court's ashes. Upon hearing my story, the innkeeper responded with a bless your heart and suggested a tiny bridge over a nearby stream. But somehow, oh, that seemed too easy. Instead, I drove to Trolley, a small town with which Court had once fallen in love with. The girls at the tourist office suggested I drive out to Brandon Point, a beautiful, quiet spot. They said, just stay to the right when you get to the fork in the road. And whatever you do, don't go left to Dingletown because their annual horse race is this weekend and there's sure to be a crowd. So I got in my car and onto the road that rounds Dingle Peninsula. Oh, I had every intention of following the girl's advice, but when I got to the fork in the road, something told me to go left. So without stopping, I found myself heading toward the bustle of the horse race instead of the serenity of Brandon Point. I made it through Dingletown, but the day was wearing on, and I still had no clue as to where I might scatter Court's ashes. Discouraged, I finally stopped at a roadside cafe. Upon hearing my story, the waitress suggested a B&B &B where I might spend the night and start fresh in the morning. Back in the car, I finally arrived at the B&B, &B only to hear it was full for the night. After listening to my story, the innkeeper responded with a bless your heart and called another B&B. &B. She even had her husband drive me along the coast to point out spots from which I might scatter quartz ashes in the morning. That night in my room, I felt overwhelmed. What was I thinking when I decided to make this trip by myself? At breakfast, the innkeeper told me of a small, out-of-the-way path leading down to the ocean. She said it was private and no one would bother me there. And then she sent me off with a, bless your heart. I parked the car and headed down the path with my bag of ashes. Tucked in between two steep cliffs, I found a tiny patch of sand at the ocean's edge. I opened the sack and got ready. But then I stopped short. Something from above told me, no, this is not the place. It's, it, it's too insignificant for such an occasion. I paused. Really? <laughs> so I cinched up the sack and took it back to the car, where I then turned to a small local museum dedicated to the Blasket Islands. The girls behind the counter listened to my story and without skipping a beat, suggested the Great Blasket Isle as the perfect place. 
They said even though most of the boats were docked that morning due to the weather, Captain Mick was just crazy enough to be risking the trip. So I got in my car and headed back round the peninsula to the boat launch. From the young girl selling tickets, I learned that the Great Blasket Isle is wild, uninhabited, and revered by the locals. As the boat's only passenger, I was invited to sit up front. I told Captain Mick of my mission, and he suggested the cliffs at the north end of the island. I climbed down from his boat into a small dinghy, and the first mate took me ashore. Now on the island, I'm somewhat shocked to see just how rugged the terrain is. Almost at once, I have second thoughts. But when I turn around, the first mate is already gone. I scramble to the top of a rocky slope, only to see the boat motoring its way back to the mainland. I stand there for a moment, wanting to shout out, come back, don't leave me here to do this all by myself. But it's too late. (laughs) The boat won't be back for at least an hour. I'm alone with quartz ashes on a beautiful but desolate island in the rain. I start my trek along the edge of a grassy cliff overlooking the beach, not knowing where I'm going, just feeling an urge to press on toward the north. With no clear path ahead of me, I scuttle over rocks and hop over small crevices until I reach a precipice and there's a gap of maybe five feet ahead of me. I blithely think, oh, I can jump that. And then just as quickly, no, I can't. What am I even thinking? So I turn to survey the beach. I half walk, half slide down a slope of loose, wet shale and head to the north end of the beach where there's a small alcove surrounded by steep rock. It seems relatively cozy and private. In fact, it suddenly strikes me as the perfect location. There's even a a flat slab of rock at the water's edge to serve as a sort of altar. I open the bag of ashes. It's still raining steadily. I scatter the ashes onto the flat rock and step back to watch the waves come in. By way of ceremony, I recite Yeats's poem, The Lake Isle of Innisfree, which begins, I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree. I wait for all the ashes to be washed away, but I see the waves starting to recede. I worry that the boat will return before all the ashes are gone and force me to leave before I'm ready. But just then, as if on cue, a rogue wave comes in and washes the last of the ashes away out to sea. A pair of seals appear in the water, and as they swim past, one seems intent on looking to see what's happening on shore. It stops and watches, as though paying its respects to the ceremony that has just transpired, before finally swimming off. After raining the whole trip, the clouds suddenly part, and the sun comes out, and I feel a great weight being lifted. I know my husband is there, with me, feeling free and at peace, at last. Thank you.
beautiful note for us to end on tonight. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> so thanks to tonight's storytellers and to our studio audience who we were so glad to invite back to our newly renovated or almost finished newly renovating studio. Give yourselves a hand. Great audience. Yeah. I'm Amy Antonucci, and on behalf of all of us here, thanks for listening. I now turn it over to John Lovering and John Nash for the final few minutes of audio theater. <laughs>